He's the first Latino to hold a U.S. Senate seat from California. We're talking this week with Alex Padilla, who was appointed to fill the seat vacated by now Vice President Kamala Harris. We'll get his take on everything from electric-powered manufacturing plants to what his pandemic year was like. Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and CAP Radio. I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. And I'm Nigel Duwara in Los Angeles. Hey, Nigel, do you have $800,000 I could borrow? Absolutely, I got it right here. Nope, just kidding, <laughs> I don't. But I am looking for it, Nicole. This year, I thought I would buy a house. Hey, you and everyone else in California who's been trapped in an apartment for the past, what, 14 months? Who's counting, though? Uh, actually, I'm in a duplex. But yes, that didn't happen, in part because of median home prices, a very scary phrase in California. Yep, and they keep on climbing and it keeps getting scarier. Just in San Diego, okay, the median home price went from very affordable, not really, but $600,000 last year, to where it is now, $800,000 for a median home down there. That's crazy. And it's the same story over and over. We were having this conversation last year when the median home price hit 715. This number, Nigel, is just mind boggling. Think about it. If you want to have a nice down payment on a home, you need almost $200,000 cash. Like who who just has that lying around? Tell me, I would love to know. I think I can make a slight confession. You got to do what I did, which is basically wear the hamburger costume and go rob a bunch of banks. Just <laughs> kidding. I didn't do that, police. I didn't do that. I think the idea for a lot of people is to find a place to hide out during the pandemic. I don't know if it worked, but I guess I hope. Now, Nicole, I know the news up there in Sacramento is the notorious suspense file. Can you explain to me what this is and why everyone is freaking out about it? It's a good question, Nigel, and this is one of those weird things in the California legislature. Most people never even hear about the suspense file. It's just so deep in process land, but it's actually a really unique, interesting thing. So how it works, we all know how a bill becomes a law, right? We watch Schoolhouse Rock. Yes. When bills pass their first committee... Usually, in most state legislatures, in Congress, they go straight to the floor for a debate before all the lawmakers in that chamber. But in California, if the bill costs money, more than $150,000 to be exact, instead of going straight to the floor, it goes to the Appropriations Committee. And this committee gets bills all year long. It lets them pile up until there's hundreds and hundreds of them. And then about this time of year, when lawmakers have a better idea of what the state budget is going to look like and what they can afford to spend money on, they'll open the floodgates and release a bunch of bills at once. But they will also hold a bunch of bills back and kill them. And this is a very interesting hearing because nobody knows what's going to happen. All of the discussions about what bills to kill and which bills to let out happen behind closed doors. So anybody who's plugged into the Capitol is really excited when the suspense happens and they're getting their popcorn and watching it. And everyone else in California has no idea what's going on. Chambers and killing and gosh, <laughs> it just sounds so dramatic when it's a bunch of people in suits and <laughs> just talking about legislation. But I guess that's deals. why that's why you do what you do because to me, okay, fair enough. But I'm pretty sure they don't do that in the U.S. Senate. 
but they do have all kinds of other processes. And this week, we're talking to a U.S. Senator. Alex Padilla was appointed to fill the Senate seat formerly held by Vice President Kamala Harris. He's been in the Senate for only four months, but has already found himself at the center of some of the biggest debates, including immigration, clean energy, and infrastructure. And we are going to talk about all of that and more with him now. Senator Padilla, welcome to California State of Mind. Thank you, Nicole. Good to be here. So you and some other Senate Democrats just this week announced a plan to shift even further away from fossil fuels in order to electrify manufacturing, vehicles, and appliances. Uh, just curious, would this be part of President Biden's infrastructure plan? Uh, well, that's certainly the hope. I think, as we've said from the beginning of uh, you know all the talk about build back better, we heard it from President Biden during the campaign, you know, in his early days as uh, president. It's, it's not just addressing some deferred maintenance. If that's all we did, it's a huge lost opportunity. Uh, we can use this moment to invest in our nation's infrastructure in multiple sectors. Uh, there's a uh, you know chatter among some of my colleagues to, to only limit it to roads and bridges and tunnels, traditional transportation infrastructure. Well, I think we have an obligation to, to think bigger, think bolder, you know, invest in water infrastructure, invest in a broadband deployment, but also investing in the electrical grid, you know, adding to the resilience uh, of our infrastructure, expand capacity for a growing population, but critically helping address climate change. We know that climate change is an existential threat, we're seeing a, a more frequent and more extreme severe weather events across the country, but especially in California. You know, we have uh, yet another uh, wildfire season upon us, and even that's a misnomer. It's no longer just wildfire season. They're, they're wildfires uh, all times of the year. And so the more we can do to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels uh, is, uh, is going to be good for everybody well, you know, in California, we had rolling blackouts last summer and power shutoffs are kind of the norm for wildfire season. Is California's electric grid ready for even more demand from electric cars and appliances? So I do believe the electric grid is uh, increasingly prepared to handle uh, the increased load. But it's not a question of whether the grid is ready or not is, you know, can, can our planet take it otherwise? Uh, we, again, recognizing the impact of climate change, extreme weather patterns, uh, emissions, public health, we know that we have to uh, uh, make a change. It's uh, you know, investing in the electric grid, not just in terms of modernization, investing in clean, renewable energy sources. So we're adding supply to an increasing demand, but we're not adding dirty supply. We're weaning ourselves off of coal. The less we use uh, natural gas and other fossil fuels, the more we use solar uh, and wind uh, and improve the performance of the grid through expanded energy storage technologies, then we are able to handle that increased load, you know, while we better manage the grid. Well, in the first year of uh, public safety power shutoffs, there were large areas that were shut down from a preventative measure uh, because of the threat of wildfires. But as we're modernizing the grid, we can be more, more granular, if you will, more, more microgrid management, where if you have to shut off uh, power, you're impacting a lot fewer customers, residential or commercial, uh, because you can be much more targeted in mitigating the threats or impacts of uh, fire. 
There's this huge push to shift to clean energy. Um, President Biden visited an electric vehicle plant this week to preview new electric pickup trucks, just hoping to get more people excited about electric vehicles. You have recently pushed Biden's administration to reinstate California's authority to set clean car standards. This has been a huge issue going back years. And you're an advocate of strengthening federal emission standards to make them more in line with California's. Why do you think it's important for the entire country to move in this direction? And have you felt any pushback for being too Californian, I guess, too progressive in some of these policy fights from other lawmakers? Uh, you know, maybe a little pushback, not as much as you think. Okay. You know, some of it, uh, you know, policy differences with some of my colleagues that uh, we're still trying to bring along. You know, maybe some of it is just good natured ribbing because, uh, you know, frankly, uh, among some of my Democratic colleagues, they wish they had the general, you know, public opinion and public support for these initiatives because it's absolutely the right policy. And the beauty of representing California in the Senate is that we come here not just with good ideas that we cross our fingers and hope they will work. We come here with good ideas that the state of California, through its policy leadership and effective implementation, has demonstrated to work, whether it's uh, increasing the amount of renewable energy that feeds the electrical grid. Look, this uh, leadership California has played on uh, uh, fuel efficiency standards in passenger vehicles is nothing new. It was very successful given the size of the market that uh, California represents. We were able to work directly with uh, automobile manufacturers uh, for them to re-engineer their fleets to more efficient, cleaner vehicles. You know, there, there was that uh, uh, road bump of the, the prior administration. So thankfully, under President Biden, we are back on track. And so the first step was to restore California's uh, authority uh, to, to lead in this space. Uh, and now the second goal is to have right the federal government follow California's lead. We know it can be done. Those much more fuel uh, efficient vehicles are on the road and it's not just you know s small cars and coupes so technology has come a long way there's something uh, there's an electric vehicle for everybody uh, nowadays and we know that this is the direction we need to continue uh, to go in you know for the sake of our public health for the sake of our planet we'll have more with u.s senator alex padilla in a moment stay tuned for more california state of mind It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nigel Duara. And I'm Nicole Nixon. Before the break, we were talking about the future of clean energy in our conversation with Senator Alex Padilla. Nigel, it reminded me of our story a few weeks back about dreams for a wind farm off California's coast. Yeah, it was a great story. So the Biden administration just approved the first utility-scale wind farm off the coast of Massachusetts, and Governor Newsom teased a, quote, huge announcement on that coming soon. I wonder what that could be. <laughs> you know, honestly, Biden's spendy infrastructure plans and Newsom's, like, cash cow state budget proposal remind me of each other in a lot of ways on these spending items, and, you know, mostly because Republicans hate them both so much. Well, let's get back to our interview with newly minted U.S. Senator Alex Padilla. He was serving as California's Secretary of State until earlier this year when he was appointed to serve out the rest of Kamala Harris's Senate term. Padilla is a freshman, but he's taking up a perennial and thorny issue, 
immigration reform. I want to shift uh, now. A lot has been made of the fact that you are California's first Latino senator and you now chair a subcommittee on immigration. You have a bill to create a path to citizenship for millions of undocumented frontline workers. I just wonder and, you know, I wonder this about Vice President Harris, too. She's been handed the task of sort of solving all the problems at the border How much pressure do you feel to deliver results? Immigration has been an issue that's been debated for over a decade now. How do you navigate coming into what has been this intractable situation? Yeah, no, look, I think it's both a a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous responsibility to to make progress in this space. Uh, Dignity and respect Uh, And a a pathway to citizenship for undocumented essential workers. Uh, Yeah, it's it's personal to me, but it's also in the best interest of the country. And there's no state that has more at stake when it comes to immigration policy than the state of California. Right. You talk about, you know, do do I get some pushback from, uh, you know, my colleagues from across the country? I'm constantly reminding everybody, both sides of the aisle, California is not just the most populous state in the nation. We're also the most diverse state in the nation. We are home to more immigrants than any state in the nation. And here's a key piece here. We represent the largest economy of any state in the nation. That's not a coincidence, right? The, the, the economic power of the state of California is in part the result of the contributions of so many immigrants that have come to the country, come to California uh, over the years and are working in a number of sectors. And so you're right, the, uh, the debate over updating our nation's immigration laws has been more than a decade in the making. Uh, I am actually hopeful and optimistic. It was in 2013, the last time the United States Senate passed a comprehensive immigration reform package. They didn't make it to the president's desk, but it wasn't that long ago. And so with that as a, maybe a place to start working from, uh, I, I do believe we're building momentum. There's a lot more support for you know, protecting uh, uh, DACA participants and DREAMers, for example, uh, on a bipartisan basis than just a couple of years ago. There's you know, clearly bipartisan support for protecting farm workers because people recognize the important role they play in a critical uh, sector of the economy. Uh, and so my proposal, the first bill I introduced as a senator, would provide that similar protection. The, the imagine that to be able to live in fear uh, without the fear of deportation and a pathway to citizenship for essential workers. Uh, and here's uh, just a couple of numbers to uh, you know, set the context. Uh, when we think about the COVID-19 pandemic and the devastating toll that it's taken on far too many communities, We've been applauding, we've been tweeting, we've been posting about all the frontline workers that have showed up to work, you know, risking their health, that of their loved ones, to keep the rest of us safe and to keep the economy going. Workers in healthcare, workers in construction, transportation, agriculture, and more. People are surprised to learn that there's more than 5 million of those essential workers that aren't just immigrants, they're undocumented immigrants who have lived in the United States on average for 18 years. So clearly folks and families that have been here, have been working here, have been paying taxes here, contributing to this, the, the strength of our nation, given the sacrifices of uh, particularly this last year during the pandemic, they've earned a pathway to citizenship. 
You um, recently held the first committee uh, or the first hearing from your subcommittee, um, being the first Latino chairman, I believe it was a very historic hearing. Uh, Did you feel sort of that, you know, that historic moment? Did that hit you at all during during the hearing? And what did that feel like? Do you mind sharing? Yeah, no, it does. Uh, you know, I'll be honest. It was something that I thought about both the, the night before the hearing as, uh, you know, I was finishing my preparations, make sure we had the, the background and our uh, initial questions in order because uh, folks keep reminding me of the historic uh, nature of that moment. Uh, so I wanted to make sure I fully appreciated it and, and maybe lived up to it. Uh, it's one thing to think about it and reflect on it. It's a whole nother to uh, continuously hear it from your colleagues. And I think that's where it really, really sank in to, uh, to open the hearing, provide the opening statement, setting the stage for the agenda, and not just hearing from uh, Senator Cornyn from Texas, the ranking member of the committee, but then to hear from Senator Dick Durbin, uh, the uh, uh, majority whip in the United States Senate, longtime senator, longtime leader, chairman of the Judiciary Committee as a whole. And for him to underscore uh, not just the symbolism, but the significance of the moment really, really makes it sink in here. Alex Padilla, you become the first Latino senator in the history of the United States Senate to chair the Immigration Subcommittee hearing. That is no small thing. It is the right thing. And I'm glad that you are here, not just for the people of California, but for our nation. You can speak, as you already have, to the reality of immigration, what you and your family have lived through, what they've worked so hard to prove themselves over the years and how important their sacrifice has been to you and your family and your life. Uh, but again, it's uh, now all about living up to the, the opportunity and the responsibility to make progress on what's been uh, a, a very uh, challenging uh, vexing issue for, for far too many years because there's millions of families across the country that need relief, need help, need security now. On the flip side of that, though, What do you think it says about our highest offices of power that already the threshold for women and people of color is so high to get there? But finally, when you do get into that office, does it seem like, oh, Senator Padilla will handle immigration because his parents are immigrants? Uh, Well, that's not exactly the way the way it played out. Uh, You know, one of the things that I'm still getting used to in the Senate when you've been in office for uh, uh, 20 years, uh, being on the uh, lower end of the totem pole when it comes to seniority is something that's a little bit of an adjustment. Uh, but that's you know some of the, the older rules that are in place here. We, we still got to navigate through. Uh, but uh, among the uh, sort of house rules that we made was to provide newer members uh, the opportunity to chair subcommittees you know, more quickly. Uh, and so when uh, it came to me to decide of the various uh, committee, the subcommittees that were available, I leaped at the opportunity because the timing, I think, is ripe to make significant progress. Uh, there's a new majority in the United States Senate uh, than, than there's been previous years. It's, it's, a, it's a bare majority, but a majority nonetheless. There's still a Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. And we have in President Biden, somebody who's supportive and not just willing, but helping advocate for updates to our immigration law. So this gives me an immediate seat at the table uh, to, in, in all those conversations, uh, both sometimes on a bipartisan basis, sometimes one-on-one with colleagues uh, on both sides of the aisle trying to uh, you know, bring about justice and fairness for uh, immigrants of all types around the country. 
I've heard you say elsewhere that you have met with many of your Republican colleagues, and it's true there's a very slim Democratic majority, but you would still need support from Republicans. Just curious if you might share what some of those conversations with GOP members are like and what the discussion has been for finding a common ground on immigration and not just, you know, agreeing that the system is broken, but agreeing on an actual path forward. Yeah, well, it's uh, it, it is a mix, to be honest. You know, if you look at the the fifty Republican members of the United States Senate, there, there's a spectrum there. You know, who's maybe more initially supportive versus you know who may be impossible to get if we can uh, bring items to a, a vote on the floor of the Senate. Uh, in terms of what some of their concerns are, like I said, I think there's more support for Dreamers generally and farm workers generally than there's been uh, in other. Uh, recent years. Uh, We're trying to build that same momentum for support for essential workers. One of the things that has been disappointing is uh, some of our colleagues, you know, racing down to the border over the last couple of months and uh, pointing to the increase in uh, childhood unaccompanied minors or, uh, you know, families seeking asylum at the border saying, you know, until we get this under control, there's nothing that we can do. Uh, which is either a pretext for obstruction uh, or just off base. You know, I, I want to be very, very clear here, not just a farm worker legislation, not just dreamers, but my bill specifically. This is not granting automatic citizenship and certainly not that pathway to citizenship for anybody who's arriving here today. We're talking about focusing on the 11 million uh, undocumented immigrants living in the United States of America, you know, again, the the adults that have been working, paying taxes, having been here on average 18 years, they deserve fairness, justice, and security sooner rather than later. In the meantime, yes, the situation at the border uh, needs to be addressed. A prior administration starved the agencies that are in charge of handling those, uh, you know, asylum requests and applications. Uh, And so we've got to restore the capacity of the asylum system in a way that's much more humane than it's been in recent years. Uh, So it's not an either or. We can and must do both. I wonder, Senator, if you could just talk a little bit about the last year as a whole and what it's been like for you. It's been just this cataclysmic time. It's literally affected everyone on the planet. What has your pandemic life been like? How did you manage through this crisis personally? And and do you mind sharing with us some of your thinking as we slowly emerge from all of this? Yeah, you know, that's uh, we can do a whole uh, <laughs> show just uh, on that, <laughs> the <back>. emotional <laughs> roller coaster that this last year has been. I mean, I think first and foremost, I feel, uh, you know, blessed, you know, my wife, Angela, our boys, you know, we've managed to stay safe and healthy, you know, we're uh, between homeschooling, uh, you know, remote schooling and working from home primarily uh, through the COVID-19 pandemic. We did what we were asked to do uh, and what we had to do, uh, you know, but uh, so it came with some challenging times. You know, we look around us, the neighborhood I grew up in, Pacoima, California, where my dad still lives, uh, was at one point called the epicenter of the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic and to know people firsthand that uh, have contracted COVID and recovered and folks who contracted COVID and didn't make it, you know, makes the the, the job and public service in general for me very personal uh, and, and more urgent uh, to uh, reflect on the summer that we had last year after the killing of George Floyd, 
and our nation's biggest, most recent reminder that uh, we have a lot of work to do to ensure civil rights for everybody and to undo discrimination and uh, institutionalized racism in all its forms reminds me of the importance and the urgency of the work that we have to do. I'm just curious, do you have any FOMO or are you pleased that you won't have to be overseeing the recall, the likely recall election here in California? (laughs) Well, I won't be overseeing it as secretary of state, but uh, you know, with uh, my, my freedom of speech, uh, can uh, definitely and seriously say this recall is a horrible, horrible idea. Uh, you know, to think that the same forces that uh, refuse to hold Donald Trump accountable for his utter failure of in leadership in so many ways uh, now want to hold uh, Gavin Newsom accountable for uh, having been given, having been dealt a bad hand by the Trump administration. Uh, it's, it's, it's hypocritical, uh, it's wrong, and we'll do what it takes to defeat the recall. Well, I think we're out of time. Senator Alex Padilla, thank you so much for joining us. All right, thank you. Until we chat again. So, Nigel, Padilla has only been in office a few months, but he has to run for re-election next year. But he's already won statewide elections as Secretary of State, and his approval ratings aren't bad. He has 34% approval, but 45% of people have no opinion of him. So he does have some work to do to reach people over the next 18 months here. And that's California State of Mind for this week. Next time, as we head into the Memorial Day holiday weekend, we're gonna explore our state parks, their importance to California, the threat posed by wildfires, and their most recent role as popular places to find solace from the stresses of the pandemic and walk all over our precious little flowers. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Vigland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Mark Jones is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and from Sutter Health, 